Well, that was abrupt. <laughs> Working that out still. Um, for those of you that don't know, it was daylight savings time today, and so we jumped forward an hour. Our clocks are not adjusted, and so I'm going to borrow the, the same line that I'm sure every pastor in the country is using today and say, I'm just going to go ahead and preach for two hours. It may seem like that. We're covering a lot of ground this morning. We've been in Exodus, and we're going to cover from chapter 3 to about midway through chapter 4, and that's going to end at verse 17. And the reason for this is that it's just one conversation between God and Moses, and I felt like to divide the text any other way would do harm to the author's theological intent. And so we're going to cover it all together this morning. We might not touch on every verse, but we're going to work through the story together. Thus, I don't have much of an introduction, and I'm just going to hit you with what I think the main idea of the text is, and that's that one sentence that you can grab a hold on throughout the week as you meditate on the scripture and and how it might apply to you. And the main idea this morning is that the presence of God empowers his people to carry out his will. The presence of God empowers his people to carry out his will. We're going to work through the text in three simple parts. We're going to see that God calls, God sends, And then God gives assurance, or God assures. God says to Moses and to us, I am God, I am sending you, and I will get the job done through you. So I'm going to pray, give a little bit of background, and then we will be at verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, our minds are prone to wander during this time. But we know that we shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would put within us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to feast upon this this truth, these truths that you've given to us. Help us to understand what it is you would have to say to us now and to apply it to our lives. Lord, what we have not give us What we are not, make us. And what we know not, teach us. Come and be present with us now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far in Exodus, we've learned that despite the Pharaoh's really harsh treatment of the Israelites, God's promises have prevailed. Despite his attempt to enslave them and and make them not have any desire to procreate because of his fear, the people rising up against them and overtaking the land, Israel has continued to increase. If you remember in chapter 1, he enslaved them for that purpose. Then he decreed that there would be these secret killings, but he was defied by the Hebrew midwives, and so once more his plans were thwarted, and then at the end of chapter 1, he had just gone with explicit genocide to try and solve the Hebrew problem, and so their children were to be cast into the Nile. Things were not looking good for Abraham's descendants, although we read, despite the oppression, Israel continued to multiply. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, we were introduced to a special child who was delivered from Pharaoh's edict by way of an ark and an unlikely adoption. Indeed, Pharaoh's daughter would draw him out of the waters that were to be his death and into the royal household so that that which was supposed to end Moses' life actually ended with him eating at Pharaoh's table. And so she named him Moses because she drew him out of the Nile. 
And though he was raised in an Egyptian household, he would not remain a prince of Egypt. Instead, we discovered that this special child, Moses, would identify more with the people of God than the people of Egypt. So much so that he sought to deliver one of them. But he went too far and murdered a man, killed an Egyptian taskmaster, and consequently he was forced to go into exile. And even at that, that was to add some insult to injury, after he killed the guy, the, the man that he was trying to deliver, rejected Moses' leadership. If you, if you look in 2 verse 14, he said, Who made you a prince and a ruler and a judge over us? Who gave you the right? And so Moses fled. Long story short, Moses run, he went from royalty to on the run rather quickly, and as special as his birth story was, he doesn't look all that much like a deliverer at this point. He doesn't seem really special, like he's a man capable of delivering a whole nation. After all, he couldn't even deliver a single person. Still, at the end of chapter 2, we are given hope as we hear that announcement that God is listening to his people. That he is not ignorant to their suffering. And we get this sense that he is about to act. As we are told, he is ready to honor that he remembered the covenant that he made to Abraham. We get that sense that the 400 years of slavery for the Hebrews is coming to an end. And so we begin at chapter 3. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, yet was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses answered, here I am. So the opening verses here actually reveal to us that things are not going much better for Moses, right? He is tending his father-in-law's sheep, which is not an occupation that the Egyptians thought well of. They, they thought shepherds were kind of gross and nasty and lowly, not something you aspire to. And so he, his life isn't going according to plan, right? He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. He's living in his father-in-law's basement, kind of. It's just not a successful life by any stretch of the imagination. And so one day he's wandering in the desert, with the flock, and he notices a bush that is on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And this is in the days before, you probably have those fireplaces in your house with the, the logs on them, and then there's a gas that comes up, and it looks like they're on fire, but they're not consumed. It's before any of that existed. And so Moses is a little bit intrigued and a little bit freaked out, and his curiosity leads him to go and find some answers to his question. Why isn't this bush burning up? And it's actually his questions that lead him into an incredible encounter with God. I don't think his experience is that different from our own, friends. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity on the human heart. And so it's it's my belief that all of us, at some point in life, find ourselves pondering life's big questions. And that God uses these questions in such a way as to tug on our hearts and pull us in his direction. I think if you are a Christian... You, like Moses, have had a burning bush experience wherein God revealed himself to you. 
and satisfied some of your curiosities, told you his name. I think sometimes we sell our our conversions short as well, and I don't want you to do that. Because actually, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus, your conversion experience, it's better than this burning bush experience of Moses. Right? It's, it's more fantastic than that, and here's why. At the burning bush, Moses encounters God, but he can only come so far. God says, don't come any closer, and, and Moses hides his face. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we're not just coming into the presence of God, but we have God's presence come into us. And that is a remarkable experience. It's exponentially greater in terms of intimacy than what's happening with Moses here. Moses is told, verse 5, don't come any closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then God continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. As God speaks, Moses becomes acutely aware of two things, God's holiness and his own unholiness. And I think we have a physical depiction of a spiritual reality here, right? That there is a chasm, a gap between God and man that can only be bridged by Jesus. It's only in Christ that we're actually able to obey that command of James Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Because apart from Christ, if we were to try to obey that command, we would be dead. We would draw near to God and find ourselves dead because we were unworthy, unholy, and sinful. Hebrews, as we read earlier, spells this truth out for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us the curtain that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Friends, we come into the presence of God only when we have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. Moses here knows that he is a wretched sinner and that he has no right to come before this God. That's why he hides his face. Yet he finds himself in his presence. And this is not just some made-up, powerless, or pagan God. This is the God who reveals himself. The God who spoke everything into being. The covenant-keeping promised God of his father and of the patriarchs. This is the God of Israel. Notice also God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob. But he says, I am the God of. This indicates that God's people never really die. That those who have faith live with God. If you remember when we were going through the book of Mark, this is the verse that Jesus quotes in reaction to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection. If you you remember, we had that fun mnemonic device, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in eternal life or the resurrection. And Jesus, in refuting them, said, haven't you read that passage about the burning bush in the Old Testament? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that's what we see here, that this is the living God, and his people live. In these verses, the living God is personally introducing himself 
to Moses, this unlikely deliverer. Friends, God has introduced himself to you also. Not in, in the way of a burning bush, which is it's kind of a metaphor for the gospel here. But he has he's introduced himself to you through the gospel, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know him? Have you encountered God? Have you considered those big questions in life? If indeed God has called you to himself, you should know what Moses is about to discover. That whomever God calls, God sends. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites' cry has come to me, and I have also seen the way of the Egyptians, how they are oppressing them. Now, this is all sounding real good to Moses at this point. He's encountering God. God is giving him really good news. I'm about to deliver your people. I'm about to rescue the Hebrews. But then Moses hears verse 10. Therefore, I'm going to save him. I'm going to rescue him. Here's my plan, Moses. Therefore, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I mean, imagine being in Moses' shoes for just a second. You're in exile from Egypt because you killed a guy. You're wanted for murder. The Hebrews have rejected you the first time you just tried to deliver even just one of them. And for the last 40-ish years, you've been tending sheep and hanging out in your father-in-law's basement. You just don't feel like a deliverer. You don't feel like somebody that's up to this great task to go before the Pharaoh. But I don't think we should have to imagine too hard what it is to be in Moses' shoes. Because his situation is actually quite similar to our own. See, God tells Moses that he is going to rescue his people and that he's going to use Moses to do that. Likewise, if we are in Christ, God has revealed himself to us, told us of his intent to save all kinds of people throughout the whole world, and he's commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. As Philip Ryken has said, the God who saves is the God who sends. Thus, every follower of Christ receives two callings, first to salvation and then to serve. God saves and uses imperfect people like Moses and you and I to accomplish his perfect will. His power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, Jesus saves us from something for something, just as he's going to do from the Israelites. He's going to save them from slavery for worship of him. And he's going to take them into the promised land. He saves us out of the world into his church and onto mission. He has prepared good works for us to do. We are God's plan for rescuing the nations. You are God's plan to take the gospel to people that are still enslaved to their sin. wonder, how are you doing that? Are you sending missionaries? Are you going? Are you praying for the hearts of the lost? 
Are you serving the poor and the weak and the marginalized? Are you sharing the gospel with your friends, coworkers, and family? Or are you making excuses like Moses? Who in verse 11 says, whoa, 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 God. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Are you crazy? I am a nobody, God. Why why would Pharaoh listen to me? And we've got to appreciate Moses' position here. I mean, marching into Egypt and and making demands of Pharaoh, it it seems like it might be as effective as, I don't know, a, a mailman from Florida flying a gyrocopter into Capitol Hill and landing on the lawn to make demands of Congress. It just doesn't seem like it's going to have all that much impact in the grand scheme, or that it's going to get anything done. The plan, even though it's God's plan, doesn't seem like a good one to Moses. So, like a pouting child, Moses begins to question God's wisdom. Not once, not twice, but five times. And each time, God meets Moses' folly with compassion and understanding. It really is kind of awesome how patient the Lord is with Moses. And I love how he reassures him in verse 12. God answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. God is saying to Moses, The exodus, the rescue of my people, does not depend on your competence, but on my presence. In his commentary on these verses, Peter Enns writes, Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. Moses says, I cannot do this. And God responds, you're not, I am. The God that is with Moses is the God that is working through Moses. And there are many examples of this throughout scriptures. When Joshua inherited the mantle of spiritual leadership, God promised him, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. God makes the same promise to Gideon, who's a little bit timid to lead troops into battle. God says, I will be with you. He makes the same promise to Jeremiah, who was a very young prophet. He says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. And this promise of God, it's not just with the prophets. It didn't terminate with Moses. It comes to us when Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. That's the promise of God. It's crucial for us to understand that everything we do, everything we're called to do and be is because of Christ and will be accomplished in Christ. I think perhaps your excuse for not being obedient to God's word in your life or, or doing what God has asked you goes a little something like this. I can't do that, God, because I'm not, and you can put in, fill in the blank however you want, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm, I'm not courageous enough. I'm not tall enough. I can't do that, God. I'm not respected enough. But what we learn through Moses' objections here is that it doesn't matter if you're smart enough if you're eloquent enough, if you're courageous enough, or wise enough, because God is. God doesn't reassure Moses by telling him to embrace the power of positive thinking or to visualize himself succeeding in Egypt. Right? He doesn't have him look in a mirror and say, all right, Moses, you are Moses. 
you can do this. This isn't how God reassures him. He doesn't tell him if you just have enough faith, you'll be able to succeed. God doesn't tell Moses, my people will go free because you're going to be the man. No. God says to Moses, you are going to succeed because it doesn't matter who you are, but who I am. Friends, security and confidence come not from self-assurance, but the assurance of God's presence. Security and confidence don't come from self-assurance, but from the assurance of God's very presence. I will be with you, Moses, and all of Israel will worship me on this very mountain. I mean, what encouraging words. Moses should be all fired up, ready to go now. I think I would be. But it's not enough. He still objects. Look at verse 13. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? So Moses kind of says, Suppose I go, uh, who should I say sent me? And then what would I tell them after that? And God responds, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. God identifies himself as Y-H-W-H, and we think that it's pronounced something like Yahweh, but nobody knows for certain because the original Hebrew lacks the vowel pointers. On top of that, Jews never actually said the name because of its holiness. And so instead of reading Yahweh, or however it's pronounced, they would read Adonai, which simply means Lord. This is why you find in all caps in a lot of your English translations of the Bible the word Lord instead of the word Yahweh. Also in the King James, you probably have uh, Jehovah, but that comes more from a misunderstanding of how the vowel pointers would work with these letters Y-H-W-H. The The point is the same that his name is actually stemming from this verb, which is hayah, simply means to be. Hayah, you can say it if you want, it sounds like a karate noise, like hayah. Maybe you have some phlegm on your neighbor when you say it. But it means to be. And so we, we can see a little bit of what God's name means just, just in, in defining to be, right? God, God is, he is central. He has no beginning. He has no end. He causes everything to be. God is self-sufficient and self-existent. He needs no air, no sleep, no food, and no thing. God is eternal and unchangeable. He is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is infinitely perfect. He is the great I am. He is who he is. I think it's also important to point out that this is likely not the first time that the name of God has been revealed. After all, it seems like the Hebrews would be familiar with this because if God simply told Moses to tell them, I am has sent you, and they didn't know that was how God identified himself, it wouldn't really help to verify his story before the Israelites. I also think that uh, Peter Enns is right when he says, um, in this sense, I am who I am can be understood and this is the solution I prefer, 
as a near refusal to dignify Moses' question with an answer. God says something akin to, I am who I am. They know very well who I am. What a question. What follows is the announcement of the name Moses is to give them, the Hayah, I am. I love it. The elders know darn well who I am. Tell them, I am sent you, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. God's name identifies him. It tells us about his character and his nature. It tells us that he is who he is. That he's not malleable or changeable, that we can't edit or reshape him. God's very name stands in contrast to the notion that he is whatever someone wants him to be. I think for many people, their God is not allowed to contradict them. If God says something that they find offensive or they just don't quite like, they redefine God. But the I am God of the Bible will not allow us to do that. He's not a Stepford Wives kind of God. I've never seen the movie Stepford Wives, but I think the gist of it goes something like this. There's a group of men that decide their wives are annoying, and because of this, they think that they contradict them, they just don't do what they want them to do. And because of all that, they create this robot race of wives that just do exactly what they want them to do, completely submissive and docile. And at first, it's kind of awesome, but then it becomes ultimately unfulfilling because they don't know an actual person but just a projection of themselves. I think this is how a lot of people are with God. They don't like the the real God, and so they reshape him into what they want him to be. This leaves them worshiping a projection of themselves, a figment of their imagination. We've said it many times, and I think it's worth stating again. If your God cannot contradict you, you are not worshiping God but yourself. God is not who you want him to be. He is who he is. It's the same unchanging God that identifies himself as the I am here, who takes on flesh and gives us a new name to call him later. It's that name, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, Jesus Christ, who in identifying himself to his contemporaries said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. When asked if he was the Messiah, responded, I am. I wonder, are you worshiping Jesus, the great I am, or a projection of yourself? Is God allowed to contradict you? God tells Moses to tell the people, I am the God of your fathers and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me. And then he proceeds to tell Moses what to say. Verse 16. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please, let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to our God. 
quick sidebar here, uh, three-day journey, they're not just asking for three days, right? They're not asking for a weekend retreat. It's a figure of speech, and we have similar idioms. Uh, I didn't come up with a whole lot of examples, but the best one I came up with is this. Uh, If I say, Dad, can I have the car keys? But I'm not just asking for the car keys. I'm asking to take the car for an indefinite period of time with nobody else being able to use it. And so likewise, it's a figure of speech that's saying, we're going to take a journey of an indefinite amount of time. So from the start, Moses' words to Pharaoh are, are bold, and they're filled with the fullness of God's command to let the people go. All right, sidebar's over, verse 19. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he is forced by a strong hand. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor, and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. So you will plunder the Egyptians. I mean, this is, God's made Moses' job pretty easy. Show up, tell them who sent you, tell them my word, and they will listen to you. Pharaoh won't initially, but that's so that I can bring glory to myself. But eventually, my victory is going to be so great over the Egyptians that they will be plundered willingly by your women. That last bit in verse 22 about the women plundering the Egyptians, it's really neat. And God is saying, Moses, after all this has happened, after I show everybody my glory, how awesome in power I am, I want you to take all of the women shopping, Right? I think it's neat because it shows us a few things. God has specifically promised his people that they would come out of their captivity with great possessions. He makes that promise in Genesis 15, and so he's fulfilling his promise in that way. Secondarily, the plundering demonstrates God's own power. See, ordinarily a defeated nation would be plundered by mighty warriors, but in the case of Egypt, they would be plundered by women, which would demonstrate the totality of God's triumph. Additionally, as Dr. Morita argues, God is setting a pattern. The idea of conquering and taking spoils. Paul later says that Jesus conquered our greatest enemies of sin and death. That he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to his people. Jesus conquers death by being conquered by death in our place and rising in triumph from the grave. Jesus wins the victory over sin and suffering, evil and death. And he gives to us, his people, the spoils of victory. We get everything he deserves. He rescues us and brings us into right relationship with himself. But he doesn't stop there. Once more, he sends us to share the spoils with others. We, like Moses, are charged with telling others God's name and God's word. And we are promised that God's people will hear and respond. And we know that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but that to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. We know that we preach Christ crucified and that it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but that those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to them Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. We are assured by Jesus that his sheep will hear his voice, that he knows them, and that they will follow him. How simple has God made our mission? 
He has said, tell them my name, tell them my word, that I will rescue them from their slavery, and they will listen. Yet despite all of God's assurances, many of us still refuse to share Christ. Jesus has fought and won the victory for us, his people, and still we, like Moses, look for excuses about why we cannot listen to him. Saying things like Moses does in verse 1 of chapter 4. But what if they don't believe me and will not obey me? But say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses doesn't think they're going to believe him. Now, in his defense, he probably sounded a little bit crazy. You didn't hear him. So I was out in the desert, and there was this bush, and it was on fire, but like it wasn't burned up. And they're like, all right, and you were alone in the desert? It was hot? You were wandering? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so when the bush talked, I heard some voices. It was God. He told me that he's going to set you all free. He's going to do it through me. And others probably like, okay, uh, yeah, Moses getting up there. Maybe this is a, a psychological breakdown. He is 80-ish now, losing it a little bit, maybe a mirage of some type. So, so I get why Moses is saying that. I don't think they're going to believe me, God. This is his third objection. And, and God again meets him with compassion. And he gives him three signs that he will do before Israel to communicate that indeed he is met with God. First, God tells him to throw his staff on the ground. When Moses does this, the staff transforms into a snake, and he does what sensible people do when there's a snake about. He runs away. I kind of love this scene of Moses running away from the snake. It's how I, I know God has a sense of humor. Man running from snake, that's funny. But before he gets too far, we read in verse 4, The Lord told him, Stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. Now that is crazy. Right? Good country folks like y'all know that you do not catch a snake by the tail. You, you catch it by the head. Otherwise, you get bit. And in the case of Moses, if you get bit, you probably get dead. So the Lord tells him to grab it by the tail. But this is the point that Moses doesn't question God. Right? Every other point he questions him, this time, oh, I'll listen. Grab it by the tail. So he grabs the snake by the tail, and it transforms back into a shepherd's crook, into his staff. What on earth is going on here? That God is using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Uh, in a manner of speaking, this first sign has a lot in common with the ten plagues that follow. The plagues are ordinary phenomenon that God uses to do extraordinary things. There's nothing unusual about gnats, flies, frogs, and so on. Had he wished, I imagine God could have conjured up hideous beasts and other supernatural phenomena to terrify the Egyptians into immediate submission. One imagines God unleashing dragons and giant robots and yetis and all sorts of magical creatures on the Egyptians. He doesn't do that, though. He uses ordinary things to do the extraordinary in order to underline his sovereign power over all that exists. Why a snake? I think it's likely because a snake represents a sign of Egyptian royal authority, if you can think of the, the Pharaoh's helmet gear, there is a cobra-like snake on their headdresses. It's worn as a symbol of authority. The point, though, is that God has authority over nature, over Pharaoh, over Egypt, and over evil itself. 
It's hard to see a snake in Scripture and not immediately think of Genesis 3.15, where God promises that a deliverer will come and crush the head of the serpent. Indeed, Moses would lead God's people to victory over Egypt. And there would be one that would lead the final victory over evil itself by crushing the head of the snake. God is sovereign over Egypt, and he's sovereign over evil. Next, God instructs Moses to put his hand inside of his cloak and to pull it out. And when Moses took his hand out, his hand was diseased, white as snow. I'm I'm guessing he was appropriately terrified. That can probably be a little bit discomforting if your hand is diseased. One second. Um, Then God said, verse 7, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. Second sign, like the first and the third, will help to authenticate Moses' story and also serve to foreshadow how God will take an unclean nation and make it clean. Third sign that God gives to Moses is this. Moses will take water from the Nile and pour it onto the ground. And when he did, it would become blood. If the first two signs are not enough to convince the Israelites, the third sign which represents the onset of the plagues, will certainly do the trick. Turning water into blood symbolizes God's power over the elements, similar to the burning bush. It also symbolizes the power of Israel's God over the power of the Egyptians, over the Egyptians' gods, over the Egyptian nation, whose very life force was the Nile. It's also a little bit of a movie preview, because if you are familiar with the plagues, you know the first one is that the water turns to blood. It's giving him a preview here. So in response to Moses' concern that the people will think he's crazy because of his impossible-sounding story, God provides him with three signs to verify his story. And I'm betting some of you more contemplative among us are thinking, hey, if Moses gets a sign to verify his story, why not us, Right? This is a burning bush, and in some ways that seems more believable than the Christian gospel. After all, we believe and tell people that Jesus, or that God became a man, he took on flesh, lived, died, and rose as their substitute, and that he's going to return one day in the sky as the clouds split apart on the back of a white horse with a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh to bring in his kingdom in its fullness. What sign do we have? An empty tomb. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Our God really is alive. That's our sign. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we invite you to look upon the cross, to examine the historical evidence, verify the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. We invite you to turn from your sin and follow God. Moses has been assured of success, given three signs and the knowledge that God will be with him. But still he objects to his mission. Verse 10, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because I am slow and hesitant of speech. Some suggest that Moses has some kind of speech impediment or that he's forgotten Egyptian. I I don't know. I just think he's saying, God, I can't do this because I don't talk good, right? It's like, can't be me. Not much of a spokesperson. And God's response is really wonderful here. 
He says, Moses, that's irrelevant. Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go. I will help you speak. And I will teach you what to say. Again, we see God saying, it's not about who you are, but who I am. Moses is finally out of legitimate excuses or semi-legitimate excuses. And so he says, Lord, just send someone else. Doesn't exactly please God. God gets angry, but he also gives grace and allows Moses the privilege of having his brother Aaron as a spokesperson. You see in verse 15 there. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both of you, both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman. And you will serve as God to him. God gives Moses Aaron even though he doesn't need him. What a concession. I think, though, we would be remiss if we didn't point out Moses misses the point that all he needs is God's presence. The presence of God empowers his people to carry out his will. The Lord's final words to Moses, I think, are to remind him of this fact. Which, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, don't forget your staff, Moses. That's what he says. And take the staff in your hand that you will perform signs with. Moses is about to leave behind the world of shepherding forever. Why on earth would he need this staff? It's funny that this staff becomes a conspicuous player in the plague narratives. The shepherd's staff will humble the world power at the time. The raised staff will cause the sea to part and allow Moses to shepherd his people through to the other side, to the mountain of God. God will use this symbol of lowliness and of unimportance to bring about the central salvific act of the Old Testament. Don't forget your staff, Moses, because you need to know it's not Aaron that you need at your side. It's me. It's my presence that will bring success to the exodus, not you. Friends, God is not only with us, but in us. And we are in Christ. How successfully we fulfill the Lord's call on our lives does not depend on our ability to act, but on the sovereign Lord who is with us and acts through us. It is his work. And we are merely instruments in the Redeemer's hand. Church, God has penned specific tasks that you are to do to bring him glory. And the way you fulfill your ministry is by trusting in his empowering presence to carry out his will. God calls us to himself. He sends us on mission himself. And he assures us with himself. So when you feel that you are not whatever it is enough, Take not a cross, not a staff to remind you, but remember the cross. And remember not the staff, but the good shepherd who lays down his life for the people. Remember that God has said, indeed, you are not enough, but I am, and I live in you. What a great comfort for us as his people. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have introduced yourself to us. 
that you, the great I am, have told us the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. That we can be saved by knowing this name, by following this person. Father, we thank you that Galatians 2.20 is true of us. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that changes our lives. This is our burning bush experience. It changes everything. Lord, we pray that you would continue to change us this morning, that you would bring us joy at the prospect of our salvation, and that you would give us hearts that eagerly look forward to your return when you will bring all things under your lordship, when you will make all things new, and everyone will enjoy that perfect peace together with you. Father, we thank you that you are good, that our times are in your hands, that you loved us and gave yourself for us. It is in you we trust, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.